Welcome to Mox on the Mic, your exclusive look into all things Chattanooga athletics. Here's your host, Chris Goforth. This week on Mox on the Mic, we are headed to the small screen and the stage to visit with a former Chattanooga mock, Bill Landry. Bill has uh, spent a lifetime as, a, as an actor. He's won two Emmy Awards for his uh, directing work as part of the Heartland television series. It ran for 30 years on TV. If you're local here to Chattanooga, you might have seen it uh, back in the 80s and 90s on WTVC Channel 9 locally. And if you've ever been up in uh, Upper East Tennessee, up towards Knoxville, the show was originated uh, by WBIR, the uh, the TV station. Bill was the host of that, and v- eventually he kind of became the the guiding hand to that series that ran for 30 years and some 1,900 episodes. He's written books. He's a colorful guy with a lot of stories to tell. So let's get right into it. It's our conversation with Bill Landry. So you came to UTC on a football scholarship. So before we get you playing football for the Mox, first tell me about growing up in Chattanooga in the 50s and 60s. Well, uh, I lived in North Chattanooga uh, over on Mississippi Avenue. I had uh, eight brothers and sisters, and uh, we had a great swimming team, and we swam, and our family swam, and played football and basketball and uh you know just uh it was a it was a catholic school notre dame in downtown chattanooga and it was kind of rough uh down there sometimes chattanooga uh, was we didn't really know it till we grew up and moved on but uh back then it was a pretty violent time right during the vietnam war and you know Martin Luther King was killed and Bobby Kennedy was killed the year I graduated from high school. So uh, it was really a violent time amongst all the uh, uh, flower power and and, uh, drugs, sex and rock and roll. It was a pretty violent time. How many opportunities did you have to go play college football? Um, And what led you to decide on uh, staying close to home? Uh, I, I uh, was invited uh, also to Virginia Tech. Back then, it was just coming out of being a technical, uh, like a, a ROTC kind of college. Virginia Tech, I think, was almost a military school, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But uh, they had a good uh, good program, too. Let's see, Chattanooga, Virginia Tech, and, and Xavier a little bit. But... Uh, my grandfather went to Chattanooga, amazingly. So uh, my mother uh, went to Chattanooga, and really, I I wanted to go to Chattanooga. It was the University of Chattanooga when I was a freshman, and then my sophomore year it became uh, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Now you didn't play for Scrappy, did you? That was Coach Wilkes by that time, right? Yeah, yeah. My grandfather played for Scrappy, and amazingly, and uh, Scrappy had retired the year before uh, I came to UTC, 
And the year I came to UTC in 1969, I guess, 60, spring, well, fall of 68, I guess. Yeah, fall of 68. Uh, I'm just trying. That was the first. There was five black guys, friend, some friends of mine, and uh, that was the first integrated class of the football squad. It was the first time. UTC or the University of Chattanooga had black players playing uh, uh, for them. And there was a little bit of uh, education to do, a whole lot of educating to do. The things that were going on on our team and back then are um, similar, amazingly, to what's going on with the Black Lives Matter uh, marches and and, protests that are happening today it, it's a, it's eerily similar it is to me in my day when i was playing and and even later uh there was a lot of turmoil it was just under the surface and it wouldn't take much to make it boil up and that that's kind of what happened to us during the harlequin riot uh 1971 when we were you know doing that thing you know anything about that I don't. Tell me about it. Oh, well, after two years, I became more interested and and involved with the theater department. Mrs. Dorothy Hackett Ward was our teacher, and she was phenomenal. And I uh, began going to uh, being in all the plays and uh, found that I was more suited for that and wanted to do that, I, I guess. Caterino was the first string quarterback then, and he uh, he went over to the theater department one day to to uh, try out for a play, and, and I went with him and, and some other guys. Alan Farrell, uh, uh, an amazing uh, defensive tackle, he was in, in it, and he played Charles the Wrestler. And I remember a line he had – the king asked him, uh, this is Alan Farrell, the king asked him, well, what's the news, uh, wrestler? And I think Alan Farrell said, no news but the old news, sire. I think that was his line. I never forgot that. But uh, we had a lot of fun. Anyway, I forgot your question. No, you were telling me about <laughs> the Harlequin riots in 1971. Okay, so, so a part of what – the, the little theater department was the old gym and we could transform that theater department into whatever kind of stage you wanted. Jim Lewis, who I miss dearly, uh, was the tech director and he and Dorothy were the theater department. Well, the theater, that theater department produced, you know, a lot of professional talent, professional people, teachers, scholars that came out of there. You know, we might have majored in English, but we sure, sure minored in theater, and that's what I did. And there was a Dorothy Hackett Ward only had a couple of back then. We only had like two or three or four mass, you know, graduating in the theater. Most of us took another major like English or biology or something, and minored in theater. But uh, of the twelve or 14 people that were in this group of theater uh, players when I was 
there. About 10 of them made, ended up making their living either making movies or film or in the theater or teaching. But they became, you know, they got their careers. Dorothy Haggett Ward at the University of Chattanooga was that good a teacher. She was the best teacher most of us ever, ever even saw or heard about. So we, we, for two years, initially free, we did it at night, about five hours every night, we'd go to the theater department after our jobs, if we were roofing or working con construction or something, we'd go down to the theater and uh, create these plays and perform them. In the second year, we got a grant to take uh, the children's plays we were doing to different poor sections of town where there was uh, a lot of children. We set up and, and do uh, children's plays on playgrounds and empty parking lots and, uh, you know, uh, any place there was a, a large space and we had a, it was coordinated with the Department of, uh, uh, what would be that, uh, let's see, either that entertainment or edu education department or of the city had there was a truck that would go around with ping pong tables basketball goals that you could they could set up at parking lots and dead end streets and kids could play all summer it was a summer program they had a stage and a 18 wheeler giant truck and we pull that stage out and, and we would meet them with our truck every day at 4:30 and set up uh, a giant theater stage and uh you know the girls the women of the of the crew would dress up in, as clowns and make a lot of noise and we'd have music and children would come out and and they'd sit in the center and we would do these children's plays uh every day for two years and it became really the greatest theater training any of us ever had and uh we had no trouble at all until one day we were doing the show at the Alton Parks homes in a, a, a rough section at the foot of Lookout Mountain. And it was like a maze to get in there. And you would drive through these streets. And finally, there was a great big uh, baseball field and basketball play place in the center. And that's where we did the show well we we set up and it just happened that there was a meeting of the black panther party that day that night at the same place we were doing the show and these folks uh quietly asked us not to come and get out of there it wasn't a good time and we said sure let's go and it just was a bad decision we just uh, henry bowles at the who was in charge of the of the city program and the ping pong tables in the summer uh, uh, playground activity. And he and um, Dorothy Hackett Ward were the coordinators of this. And it just was a bad decision and we didn't leave. And during the beginning of that show, uh, 45 folks came over the hill for breasts and destroyed the set and, and put us all in the, all the men were put in the hospital and even some of the women. And uh, that happened one night uh, down there and it was kept pretty quiet. 
but we always call it the heartland. I mean, the, we always call it the Harlequin riot massacre because that's kind of what it was. We weren't football players except for I had been a football player. But they, these were theater artists, performers, and you know it was forty-five against six, and it didn't we didn't do we didn't fare too well. <laughs> and I've heard Bill uh, Bill Curry uh, tell the story about you know growing up in the segregated South and that you know he never had a black teammate until he got to the Green Bay Packers in the late sixties prior to coming to Chattanooga, had you ever had a black teammate before you became a mock? Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the great things I think about getting to go to Notre Dame high school back then is that we were integrated and we all, anybody that was an athlete had usually by then certainly had played a lot of playground ball with, black folks and white folks and brown folks. And then the other, you just played, we were players. And, uh, but when we, uh, got to Notre Dame had, uh, was the first team in Chattanooga to play a black school. We played Riverside high and we played Howard, uh, when I was in the eighth grade, I think, uh, and they beat us pretty bad that first game, but, uh, they, you know, Notre Dame, I wasn't playing then. I was in, in, in elementary school. But, but Notre Dame played Howard and Riverside with Johnny Hannon and those, some of those guys about 1966. And then eventually we be, be, became fully integrated in the HIL, which was the Hamilton Interclastic League. But I played with Pezman Watley, who was uh, a junior, and he went to Notre Dame. He was became a professional wrestler. He was a terrific uh, fullback in, uh, in football. He was 210, 5'10", 210, and uh, he's no longer with us either. But Pez was a good friend of mine. He really was. Pistol Pez Yeah, you remember Pez? I do remember Pistol Pez. Yeah. Pistol Pez. He won the state wrestling heavyweight champion as a sophomore. And then he lost it as a junior and won it again as a senior. Pez had a great heart, and he was he was an impressive fellow. One of the one of the most uh, most important friends I think I've ever had was Pez. He taught me a lot. He was a guy that had a long pro wrestling career. I mean, he wrestled well into the eighties, if not beyond. Yeah, he traveled the world, and. Uh, he was the happiest guy. Pez was something else. We were playing uh, a basketball tournament in uh, like uh, Tullahoma or somewhere when they had the state meet, and we we got knocked out. Uh, it was a basketball. We were driving back home about two thirty in the morning the night that the state wrestling championships were being held in Chattanooga. And Pez was trying to beat Marvin Combs at East Ridge, was a senior and the heavyweight champion. He be, he beat Pez as a sophomore, and then Pez came back, and it was two thirty in the morning by the Reed House. We were I just was driving through town with two or three other guys who were riding with me, and Pez came running across the street because he had been. Uh, celebrating with the Father Ryan 
wrestlers <laughs> downtown at that little that little motel across from the L and N train station, uh, where the I think Crystal Hamburger headquarters are now. You know, right across from the Reed House. Pez was running across the street two thirty in the morning and he jumped in my car and said, I won, Bill, I won and he was so happy because he became the state champion that night. He was out celebrating. Did, guy Pez was. did you have a love <laughs> for the stage and for acting before you got to college? Or was that something that really developed through your time with the, uh, uh, the theater department at, at UTC? Uh, great question. The answer is no. I grew up playing sports. And uh, I had a great teacher as a sophomore and encouraged me to look at other things. And he was an English professor, Shaq Van Dusen, also a wrestling coach. And he put me into reading Hemingway first and other books. And then I just started uh, college and fell into the theater department and found that I really kind of had a knack for that. And it was something I... Uh, really had never been introduced to or had time for as a swimming coach or swimming and then swimming for five years and playing basketball and football. I was one of those guys that just, you know, grew up playing sports. But finally in college, I became introduced through guys on the team, actually, the football team, uh, and, and found out that I loved that. And that's really how I became a quarterback was my big mouth and then when I was eight when I was in the seventh grade the eighth grade quarterback was in there and the coach said let me hear you and the down ready said hut one hut two and they couldn't couldn't hear the, the lineman couldn't hear the quarterback so they said damn it Landry get in there and, and let me hear you so I became a, f a quarterback because they could hear me and that same quality that my father had as a salesman, I guess, having uh, a, a voice. And then I started, you know, graduate school, trained, trained in the theater, trained my voice a little better, and ended up making a living with my voice. I want to come back to your acting career here in just a minute, but I, I want to get back to talking about uh, your time uh, playing football. Is there a particular game that stands out to you from your time uh, at UTC? Yeah, well, uh, two. In that I only really uh, played a year. Uh, I practiced for two years, but we only I only dressed out for one year, my, my freshman year. And uh, the first game I ever uh, dressed out, I think, was against uh, the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. In 1969, uh, I think, and Bucky Wofford was playing, and Alan Farrell, and John Tescavich, and Phil Payne, and uh, Angelo Napolitano, and Huggy Bear McQuillan. It was that class. They were good, they were good football players. We had a good team, and we played against Kiner and Reynolds, and and uh, it was six six at half. And uh, uh, we ended up losing, I think, thirty to six. But we played well for a, for for a half. 
but that was the first game I ever dressed out. And I remember, you know, the Chamberlain Field uh, was a beautiful place in our home field. And I think it held five or 10,000. But, you know, the first time I ever ran out on a, on a college football field <clears throat> was in Nayland Stadium with, I think there was 78,000 people there. So I was running down, catching passes, warming up, and I just was looking at the stands, you know, as the ball was bouncing off my helmet. And uh, it was pretty wild. But uh, uh, that was – and then the other game I remember so well was was uh, Louisiana Tech. We played Louisiana Tech, and there was a big big rainstorm coming. And there, there was a – you know, there was winds and – turmoil and thunder coming because Terry Bradshaw was their quarterback and we didn't, we knew he was good, but, but he ended up, you know, what happened was we, it was a pretty close game in the first 10 minutes and then the thunder happened and the lightning came and it was such a tumultuous thunderstorm that uh, they cleared the field and the lights went out and the lights kind of blew out. And we had to go back under the stadium and wait for about a half hour. And then we came back out. And when we came back out, Terry Bradshaw threw three touchdown passes and ran for two before half. I think it was 30 to six or something. Uh, Louisiana Tech and Terry Bradshaw were pretty amazing. But uh, that's the only other game I, I, I can recall. You mentioned Chamberlain uh, Chamberlain Field. Can you? Uh, what kind of memories do you have about uh, about Chamberlain Field? Did you attend games uh, as a kid? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even in they, we had uh, Jerry Harris, who was an All American, uh, I think, down there, and he was a defensive back, and I used to watch him make tackles at one yard behind the line of scrimmage when they were running a two or three hole fullback up the middle. He was an amazing football player and he ended up being our, our backfield coach. And he coached me uh, as a quarterback in high school. Uh, but Chamberlain field, uh, this was a, a wonderful, a wonderful place. And, uh, see Notre Dame high school, we didn't have a football field. And my senior year, uh, I had a good friend that played for Central High School uh, who, who was an all-state end. And his, uh, I remember he died. He died in the, as, a, I think, a junior. He was an all-state junior tight end and a terrific guy and football player, tough guy. And he knocked me out as a junior. He was a split end, and I was playing defensive linebacker behind a you know tackle. And it was a it was a play around the end, and he he came across and cracked black cracked back blocked me, knocked me out. And even though he's a friend of mine, I remember we we grew up playing basketball at the boys' club, but. Uh, it wasn't Denny Painter, but it was one of those fellows. I can't remember his name, but he he got sick and died. And when when I was a senior, we were playing Central High School in a, another rainstorm, and at at Chamberlain Field, and it was such a tragedy that this ball player had died that 
in his honor, they took his jersey and put it at on the other opposite end of the field with all and closed the stands so that both teams all played all set, you know, on the up uphill side of Chamberlain Field. If you know what I'm talking about, where the press box was. Yeah. That was that was an eerie feeling playing in a game like that against a team who had lost their star player and uh, had, you know, kind of spooked us. They wanted to postpone the game because it was such a bad night, but we went ahead and played it anyway. We didn't do too well, so, but uh, he was, that was my other big experience of uh, Chamberlain Field. Uh, And also, I met a a buddy of mine later, a fellow I got to know, when the lights went out playing Louisiana Tech, he and a couple of his friends in the stands ran down on the field in the dark and grabbed a couple of footballs and then ran off. He was a fraternity brother. But that happened too down there at Chamberlain Field. They used to have dances and stuff down there in the, in the, uh, uh, there used to be a tennis courts down there. And I remember as a freshman going a couple of dances kind of like there today. They're, can't do that in college because of the virus but it was just freshmen introducing each other you know kind of thing you mentioned field, uh, i hated to see it go i really hated to see chamberlain field uh go i like that place they had a lot of great memories saw a lot of great football played there Sadly, we lost uh, Bucky Walford some time back. He, as you mentioned, he he was a great player. What do you remember about him? What do you remember about being his teammate? <laughs> uh, he was a great leader, I'll tell you that. And I believe he's from Alabama. And uh, Bucky was a tough guy. I remember uh, that day uh, that O.J. Simpson came to town, uh, Bucky was in the locker room. And I, I, we can talk about that if you'd like. But I also remember Bucky because uh, one day at practice, uh, I was on the, you know, the, the shirts. I was on the second or third team, you know, playing against first string. As and uh, Bucky was supposed to block me, and he didn't. And I got by him once, and the coach blew the whistle and yelled a little bit. But Bucky was a that's. I'm not saying I ever, you know, I ever ousted or beat Bucky. I'm just saying Bucky one time missed blocking me in a in a practice scrimmage that didn't mean 10 cents, but I was trying to make the team, you know. And uh, <laughs> he got yelled at. And and then, but, but Bucky became, uh, he was a terrific leader and, and he wasn't, 190 he probably weighed 180 maybe 170 he wasn't a big guy he was real short and he was he he was uh he was the best running back we had uh jimmy floyd was 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 playing then too as a sophomore or i think he was a sophomore junior jimmy floyd was a terrific ball player as well and uh but but what what bucky Bucky added more than his ability to play as a leader. He he was uh, he was a funny guy. 
and uh, everybody loved him. He became a ter- uh, an important contractor and a very successful businessman when he went back home, I think, in Alabama. I think he died in uh, when he was, I think, about 19... 19- uh, he was 60, 68 or 69. He died, passed away about four years ago, I think. Something like that. How many of your former teammates are you still uh, in contact with? <laughs> not not too many. I'm, I'm more in contact with the theater people. Uh, Huggy Bear McQuillan is one. I have just now picked uh, – Huggy Bear was – a uh, I think he was he was the guard, and uh, Pete James and Phil Payne and uh, good people. I can remember them. Uh, haven't seen many of them. Uh, just just recently, I picked up Facebook a little bit and was able to find uh, Angelo Napolitano and and uh, Roger Caterino, and I saw. Uh, Mirabella, I played with Kenny Mirabella uh, for a couple of years, and Pete, and guys like that. But I've just just touched base with them. Touch base with Robbie Luking. I played with him. Robbie went from Harriman to Chattanooga, and then he uh, played for a year. Didn't we didn't get to play much as freshmen? And he went to East Tennessee State, and uh, I think he became All Conference. He was a Terrific running back, and he lived in Chad, uh, Knoxville. Bobby did. Uh, it's it's amazing once you spend that much hard time. It's like being in the army, you know. These 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 few, these these happy few, my band of brothers, and that's what they are when you go through those kinds of. That's the hardest thing I ever did was two a two a days practice in in college. Uh, I room with Alan Farrell. He was the first string defensive tackle, weighed about 240. And I was a freshman, you know, utility player. And I'd come in, and the first time I ever met Alan, he was drinking a beer in the in, in our room. <laughs> after a practice, he said he always drank one beer after uh, scrimmages to, so he could settle his stomach. And I think he was an All-American, too. But uh, so I kind of had my little corner of the room, and Alan had the rest of the room. Kind of worked like that. So but, tell me about <laughs> tell me about meeting O.J. Simpson because I had never heard this story before. That the O.J. Simpson, the then Heisman Trophy winner, comes to Chattanooga for a speaking engagement and decides to drop in and see the mocks while he's in town. Yeah. Uh, that was an interesting day and kind of kind of weird, uh, just because of what I started, what we started talking about about the Chattanooga being a pretty, pretty. It was like a tinderbox back then, you know. It, it wasn't integrated. It was just beginning to be uh, break down segregation then, and. Uh, there wasn't any uh, real racial problems at all at, uh, on the team. Uh, we just kind of we were the the, the freshmen uh, was was the only class that had players, black players. 
so we were they weren't getting to play much and we were all you know the dummies and we we you know would they'd use us for fodder back then and uh you know against the first string and stuff but 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 uh we kind of kept to ourselves uh we kept out of the way for the for the first stringers you know there was like dick vitale says you know you you had to earn your playing time your pt pt baby and uh the freshmen were you know we we were learning the ropes and i can remember being in the locker room getting ankles taped when uh and everybody was that day because we knew oj simpson was in town and we figured he'd come to see he'd come by and sure enough he took the time to come over to the locker room and i remember how wild it was that particular day because oj simpson was in town the heisman trophy winner and he's coming to see the mocks and uh everybody was hanging around the and i remember we were all getting our ankles taped in the, in the locker room with sandy sandlin and oj came in and, and they introduced him and he said uh i'm oj simpson sandy glad to meet you and, and old sandy he just kept taping ankles and and uh kind of looked and looked at him and oj was six feet and and chiseled athlete at the height of his powers and he had about a 28 inch waist and and this was before the tragedies that befell him later in life or any of us you know happened and uh oj just kind of glided across the floor like a jaguar and and he was impressive, and and then we all went to play, uh, went to practice, and knocked hell out of each other. And all during practice, I was worried. I was just kind of fretting over it. And I think other people were too, a little embarrassed that we weren't any nicer to him. So I, I hung around. I remember going back after practice that day, and uh, and I caught him coming out of his. Uh, Christian athlete speech, you know, fellowship of Christian athletes is who he was speaking to over near Grody Hall back then. And OJ came out and, and I kind of, I asked him, I kind of said, you know, I'm sorry if, if anybody was mean to you out there today. And he said, no, nobody was. And he said, we're just all athletes trying to be the best we can be. And, and uh, he never saw, he, he said that he never felt any, uh you know disrespect from from anybody from chattanooga and and i thought maybe there was but what did i know i was 18 years old so i don't know i thought about that for 50 years actually every time i would hear something about oj simpson i think about you know i, I kind of wish we'd have been a little nicer to him but maybe we were nice enough i don't know it wasn't wasn't my call but I felt bad about it and uh, still do to this day a little. Chattanooga has an interesting, um, I guess you want to call it maybe an interesting history, if you will, of, uh, of actors. I, I don't know if you're uh, aware of this or not, but uh, Hugh Beaumont, who played Ward Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver, played freshman football at the University of Chattanooga back in the 1920s. That's exactly what I did. That's that's very cool to hear. I didn't know that. Another guy, Dennis Haskins. He, that's right. He tried to play a little. 
little basketball, but Dennis was uh, Mr. Belding on the Saved by the Bell for all those years. He was in my high school class, too. Dennis and I went to the uh, theater department together for many shows uh, after that year. Uh, after I uh, stopped playing when I was a sophomore, but and started doing more and more and more theater. And Dennis was in that group, and Bo Roberts and uh, Robertson, and Robert Duffy. He became a, a set designer in Dallas, Texas, at a big theater there, and came back and became department chairman. Max Motherman was an actor. Uh, I, I worked with him doing Einstein throughout the country. We, uh, Mac, Mac and I, uh, second year, that's a different story, but the second year we were doing touring Einstein, Max Motherman was hired with me to do, uh, you know, four or 500 shows that we did during that, that stretch of that show. And Mac, Mac ended up uh, being the chairman of the department after Jim Lewis and some others retired. But Dorothy Hackett Ward in our time there was not wasted. And she, she taught us things that uh, I use every day of most of my life. And uh, it was always grateful. Uh, I, I got to, I got to take courses from her. There's a lot of great, um, uh, Richardson and people that, that you know worked with uh, uh, who's that Zero Mostel I think uh, uh, one of the Richards girls ladies beautiful actress she uh, she went on tour with Zero Mostel I think for a while and others uh, that's some of the people did you want to do movies when you were starting out or were you more, uh, did, did you want to do theater? What, what were you more inclined to at, at that point in your career? Working, <laughs> working <laughs> something. I had a good, I had a, I had a theater voice as opposed to being quiet. I mean, I never did any movies until I got out of, you know, until I was 25 or 30 and didn't know much about that technology. I did a little television uh, even back then, but yeah, I was interested in television and movies and, and theater, but if you're in that profession, it doesn't take you long to find out that if you're working, you're going to, you're, you're doing something. You're, you're on your way. You're, you, you know, you have a shot, you're, you're excited and you got to pay the bills. And in my profession, I found out that if I could just keep working and keep get a job and support my family, that uh, things would work out. That's how it kind of went. And uh, just like sports or just like anything in life, if you stay with it and work hard enough and have some kind of ability towards that craft, uh, you can get better. And in graduate school, I was always taught that it took 20 years to become a theater artist anyway. And, uh, but I couldn't get a job. And I, I just taken any work I could find in my profession uh, just to work in the field. And uh, that's how I ended up in Oak Ridge. And, uh, and from there, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't interested in going to California or New York. Uh, New York City, you know, it's just 
this is you'll you are you know where you are is who you are i came to believe that was that was something our our director at the station steve dean always said you know we can we can get trained and improve and 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 work hard and contribute but you know your strength comes from where you are is who you are and uh, art can be just as just as important and and football can be too in tennessee as anywhere you can do you can do great things in harriman or morgan county or hamlin county or suck creek or sail creek or signal mountain as you can new york city or la and and we just I just chose not to chose to have a family and uh, not drag them around. I drug them around enough. I didn't want to go to L.A. or New York to try to work that circuit. You know, Uh, I didn't I I didn't set out to become a film actor. Uh, I did a lot of things and ended up being trained to do a lot of things. Uh, but I, I was trained as a theater artist to, to write when I needed to write. And that's another thing I found out that as an actor, if there's no work, you better find work and you might have to become a producer in order to get the actor hired. So sometimes I'd act and sometimes I'd write something and try to get it produced and, and then I'd get to act. But it turned out, I guess, because of my voice, I don't know, but. I uh, I found out that I, I always would do better if I could get to act first, and I always thought I would be a writer, but it took me a long time to get to there. I had a lot of I had a lot more training to do before I was going to be a writer. The Heartland series, <laughs> which is which is yeah. what you're best known for. Um, it was yeah. a, a history of, of East Tennessee and um, having, I'm going to remember growing up in the 80s and, and watching that Channel 9 uh, here uh, in, in Chattanooga used to, used to show uh, the Heartland series. And I'm guessing through your work there, you interviewed uh, and certainly researched a lot of interesting characters from East Tennessee and the, the Appalachian mountains. Can you, can you share some of your favorite stories you ran across in putting those more than 1500, 1900 episodes of uh, the Heartland series over 30 years together? It's amazing. You know, before we had, uh, we had, I met, did stories with Dolly Parton. We met Chet Atkins. But it was the you know non-familiar mountain people who were uh, the real treasures, uh, as 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 famous and phenomenal as Chet Atkins was. When we saw Chet Atkins, we were you know we were doing a show about uh, trying to do the midday merry-go-round. We're in the 30s and 40s. That's where that's where Chet Atkins and Roy Acuff and uh, you know. Everly Brothers came out of Knoxville, and you know there was great music in Union County, and uh, we wanted to do a show about everything that you know about WSM and the Grand Ole Opry. It was preceded in Knoxville out of Union County musicians. 
all those guys, we could have had, you know, the Grand Ole Opry out of Knoxville. They had to ended up all going to Nashville to work. Uh, but we had a radio station that you, they said that back then you could walk in a country lane and you wouldn't miss a song. You wouldn't miss a beat from one farm to another. About when you got down past the fence, uh, you were listening to the farm behind you and they had it on the midday merry-go-round radio. And then by the time you got to next farm and you were losing audio from the first radio you'd hear the neighbor who was also listening to the same show and uh but chet he sat down with us like we were old friends and said you know we asked him if he'd play the theme song to the midday merry-go-round that he played at 18 and he said just a minute and he grabbed a guitar and he hadn't played it in 40 years and he picked up a guitar and didn't miss a note. And he played six or eight songs for us, like we were old friends. And uh, because he loved that, that midday merry-go-round, it was important to many, many, many people, many, not just the listeners. But the real storytellers were Wiley Oakley and Ray Hicks. And we, heard, we did a lot of stories on later. Wiley was a mountain guide and a storyteller with the soul of a poet. He said he was born in the foot of Scratch Bridges Mountain, about an acre cleared among the bears and the bobcats and so on. They'd better see your eyes. That's the way Wiley would talk. He told tales of, he would get the, he'd get the tourists to, together out of Gatlinburg when there was old dirt highway back then. And he put up a sign and said, antiques. Made the order. That's the kind of guy Wiley was. <laughs> and uh, he'd tell tales about sleeping out at night or catching a bear or don't, don't never pass up the cow barn, you know. If you ain't got a barn, maybe you ought to build one. You save a lot of trouble. That's what he talked about. Ray Hicks was a he had the oldest, purest, old accent in America. He came from Boone, North Carolina, and a great storyteller. He told the Jack tales about that rascal Jack, you know, who would outfox all them city fellers, and uh, just had good old mountain common sense. And uh, Ray said, you know, I said, Ray, one time we asked him, I said, Ray, did you ever see, you ever see a panther, you know, a painter? The old mountain lion, he said, one way, me. What? He said, one way, me. He said, ain't been for my grandfather, Benjamin Hicks, teaching me to carry rocks in my pocket. He'd eat me up. That's the way Ray talked. And I'd say, Ray, you know, I said, what was it like? He said, ground, you know, we didn't have no fertilizer. Say, we got, the ground was fertile. Call it dirt. And, uh, for years, we would get in, we would do an interview with somebody, a mountain man or a woman, and, and we couldn't understand what they were saying. And uh, it, it took a long time, 10 years maybe, before we could really interpret some of the things and, uh, from the real, the best heartland subjects that we wanted to share on the air. And, were the ones that didn't want to be on the air. <laughs> you know, people that 
have a have a lot to contribute don't necessarily want to be in the limelight you know it's just not the clay county way bobby fulcher said one time and another show we did up in clay county above cookville and up near jamestown the greatest marble players in the world come from up there it's phenomenal but here's a story you know bobby fulcher was a folklorist good great fella banjo player collector of songs and he found out about these guys and was able to get some funding and community near the kentucky border where instead of playing basketball and football or anything else soccer they played marbles they made marbles out of just rock and they had marble yards which were marble they had three holes in them and it was 20 by 60 or 20 by 80 feet and it had fences and they had night lights and that's what those folks did up there played marbles well found out there's two national and international marble championships and they they had a tournament up there at standing stone state park above cookville and they were going to take the best eight marble players and go play the best in the world well these guys up there the best eight players were too shy to it wasn't the clay county way those folks up there they, they didn't show off they didn't show out is what they'd say they just wanted to play and they were terrific and they played a completely different game than the international marble players it didn't matter they were so good that they could pick it up in a in a heartbeat so so when they had that final had the final tournament the eight best players in the whole country didn't try out they were too shy they didn't want to go to europe they're going to take them to england to play we were up there and we asked them i said you know john he said you know he said you ever you ever been outside the county and he said hell we ain't never been across the bridge much less go across the ocean, you know. They weren't kidding. And uh, they went over there to Europe, and it, they ended up winning three different championships, international champions. They beat every team, everybody, 11 to 2. They would beat them 14 to 2, you know. And they were playing the best trained, uh, prepared, well-dressed, highly funded, you know, marble kings were sponsoring these teams from new jersey and la and places bobby fulcher got these boys to come down there from clay county and they wore jeans and tennis shoes and ain't never been across the bridge and won out all the every tournament they played in beat them all and they were the the seventh through you know 16th best player the best didn't come they did that's how good they were and there's a lot of things like that around this region that we don't know about. You produced. Over, like Go ahead. Now you produced over 1,900 episodes. Um, did you ever worry about running out of stories to tell? No. As long as there's people, there's stories, and they change and uh, they are retold. Great stories are told and told again. Ray Hicks always said, I'd say, Ray, is that true? He said, well, no, but he told it for the truth. 
and and when somebody says telling it for the truth, you know, uh, the truth was the truth is pretty universal, but the real truth, you know, is always truth. We find that out. Basho, a philosopher named Basho, said this: We seek not to follow the the men of old; we seek what they sought. And there, what was true once upon a time will always be true. And uh, that's why we appreciate some of these things. Could you have imagined when you started that program that it would run as long as it did? Well, I had no idea. And we certainly had no idea it was going to run for 25 or 28 or 30 years. But we all were pretty good at what we did. And when you put five people together, four people like Channel 10 did, Steve Dean was our boss. And we had great cameraman, Doug Mills, and great writers, Linda Billman and Laura Armour, Sean Kirk back then. And, uh, Steve, uh, all these other folks, uh, more and uh, editors that, uh, I remember the first the pilot show. I thought I knew a little bit about acting. I'd got a degree and everything and been acting. And, and I was hired as the talent back then. And, the you know, the narrator and introduced the shows. And I remember our pilot show about William Bartram, the flower hunter who really uh, found the Great Smoky Mountains and then uh, introduced them to the world. Well, that's who we picked as a pilot. That was the pilot guy. Instead of using Davy Crockett or Sam Houston uh, or some familiar TV, you know, character, uh, we chose William Bartram, uh, the flower hunter, who came to the region collecting plants uh, because this is the wild. Smokies was the wildflower. Well, we did the first show, and I remember going in and post-production with Steve doing the editing and all the tricks that you can do on in television even you know in 1988 86 1984 when it started it was amazing to me that television could you could do that you know dissolves and disappearing and you know techniques and audio and music and meshing it at all it's, it's complicated but when I saw what they could do in post-production and I saw what Doug, the cameraman, could do, and I knew I could talk, you know, walk around and try not to fall in the, in the creek back then, uh, I knew we were going to have a job for at least a year or two. That's, you know, back then that was, that was good work. And we just found out that we did, uh, first year we did uh, 50, 60 shows in a year, in the second year we did 90, the third year we did 95, and, and then we did 95, and then we did about 96, and then we did about 70 or 60 a, a year for 20 years, and that's a lot of work. We got to see a lot of things, write a lot of things, tell a lot of tales. What have you been up to since the Heartland series ended? Hmm, moving. Moving here, moving there. Uh, I was living in uh, Happy Valley, which borders the National Park in, in uh, near Maryville, outside of Knoxville. 
And I met a lady after my uh, wife died. I met a lady uh, from Knoxville, Sandra Weaver, and uh, we we married and moved to her place, sold mine, and we sold hers and, and came over here to uh, North Myrtle Beach to be near my son who lives in Wilmington. He has two children, Gus and Boone, or my grandsons. So I wanted to see them and uh we did a lot of back and forth for four or five years working when i was still working a little uh in knoxville and speaking and and, and doing a lot of appearances and things like that and giving cage cove tours for the heritage center but now i'm doing mostly writing things and uh just writing uh working on stories and tales and things that I've been wanting to tell and, and finish like maybe selected writings of Bill Landry might be my next book I published three books and uh, they're they're available and that's kind of what I do now Bill, appreciate you giving us some time. It's been fun. Um, next time you have a, uh, I'm hoping you've got another book in the works. And the next time you get another book published, you let us know. We want to have you back on to talk about it. Well, sometime the, the current book that came out last year was called When the West Was Tennessee. And it's about that, that period from 1760 to 1796 when Tennessee was just Indian country between the mountains and the river, you know, and uh, that's a that's the period that's always fascinated me, and that's what that book's about. But I, I think I'll have a new book out in about six months, maybe. Well, we'd love to do this again. Okay, listen, thanks a lot. Well, I guarantee you, we have done already a lot of podcasts in just less than a year of doing this, and. I would say we're probably going to have, hopefully, we're going to be able to do a whole lot more podcasts uh, in the coming months and weeks, but I feel pretty certain when I say that I don't think we'll have anybody else quote a philosopher on a Mox on the Mic podcast. Now, I could be wrong, but that's just kind of the way I feel about it, but I appreciate Bill giving us some time and uh, visiting with us. Great stories from him. Make sure you check out his books. You can find him on Facebook as well, and uh, check out his books. They're available at your local bookstores and, of course, online as well. Thanks for being with us this week. Of course, uh, we appreciate you telling a friend about Mox on the Mic. Subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. We always love to hear from you, and certainly we appreciate you being a part of it. And while you're at it, make sure you check out the brand new Go Mox app. It's presented by First Bank. The GoMox app provides users with live stats, game day information, ticket purchasing, and exclusive Mox content, and it's all in one place. It also includes push notifications, so you'll be the first to know when there's score updates, breaking news, or promotional offers. The GoMox app is available now for both Apple and Android devices. All you have to do is go to the App Store and do a search for Chattanooga Mox Athletics. You'll find it. You can also find it in Google Play as well. Look it up. Chattanooga Mox Athletics, do the search. It's the Go Mox app. Find it, download it today. We'll see you again next week here on Mox on the Mic. Thanks for listening to Mox on the Mic. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. 
and we'll see you again soon.